Well, it's a joy to introduce again to you uh, my brother. He's been here before, but uh, I'm delighted that he is here. Uh, when, I, uh, when I see my brother sitting down there, I rem- it reminds me of a, um, uh, of a story. Somebody uh, was put in a very delicate position. They were, uh, they were asked to guess the age of a lady that was standing there. Yeah, that can be a, that can be a difficult situation to guess the age of a lady who was standing in front of you. But the guy was smart. He said, you know, he said, I, 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 I hesitate. Uh, I hesitate because I, I, I'm, I'm prone to guess on the basis of your loveliness and guess way too young. Or to guess on the basis of your wisdom and guess way too old. And so he said, I'm just at a loss to know how to guess. Now, I think about that when I think of my brother, because people always ask, well, who's oldest? And, uh, and so come on, Sam. And, uh, and some might say, well, I hesitate to, to guess on the basis of looks. my looks because and say I'm, I'm the youngest. But they would then hesitate to guess on the basis of, of wisdom and knowledge and and would obviously guess that my brother is much older than I. He has, um, God has used him in remarkable ways. And I am so proud of my brother. And it's a joy to have him here today. Thank you. We get asked that a lot. Who's older? He is older by two years. I know I look older. Uh, but that's just what happens when you lose your hair. You'd have lost yours if you had to live with him growing up. <laughs> Uh, let's go to Second Timothy chapter two. <clears throat> yeah, your pastor mentioned a church going underground in North America <clears throat> just to worship God. Here's what we say at our church. You can curse the darkness or you can light some candles. You know, cursing the darkness that creeps in in our in our culture doesn't help anything but lighting some lights lighting some candles can help and that's what discipleship is about you're really lighting candles and more people holding candles spreading the light we started a discipleship ministry years ago i gave the history of it last night to some of the church leaders and we uh We've been at it now for a long time, and we've seen some tremendous, tremendous results. We've seen disappointments as well, but more blessings than disappointments. And God working in marvelous ways in people's lives. And that's, we wanted to share some of that with you this Sequoia weekend. That's what we call our discipleship ministry now. I'll give a little bit of the, the reasons why we call it that tonight. But I want to focus this morning on discipleship is every one of ours responsibility. Not just a preacher's responsibility. Paul was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, go in chapter 2, and let's pick up what what he's saying here to his son in the faith. If you didn't get a handout, by the way, go ahead and raise your hand because we do have a handout for you. So you can follow along with me. 
Second Timothy chapter two and verse one. Thou, therefore, my son, Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that thou, Timothy, hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same, the same thing that you've heard, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. I have a question for you this morning. Why are you here? Why are you here? I'm not asking why are you at Community Baptist Church, but why are you here on planet Earth? You are one of 7.87 billion people in 2021 on planet Earth. You're just one of them. Are you here by accident or are you here by intent? Now, if you ask an evolutionist that question, the answer is simple. You are here by accident. You're going nowhere but the grave. You have a destiny with dirt. That's your future. Now, if you ask Almighty God that question, then the answer again is simple. You are here on this earth by divine intent. And your life has purpose. Your life has meaning. And you're to focus your life on God. And on the love of God and what he has done. Jesus Christ voluntarily gave his life on the cross 2,000 years ago. And we celebrated that every Sunday. But especially two weeks ago on Easter Sunday was a big celebration in our churches. As we focus on what Jesus did and dying on the cross and what he did when he resurrected on Resurrection Sunday morning. In the scripture... God gives some purpose statements as to Christ's ministry, what his ministry was about. I'm going to read some of those to you. It clearly focuses on people. Jesus focused his ministry on people. Here's the way he said it. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's John chapter 10. Even as... The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. In Mark 2, when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In John 1, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. I came to give them abundant life. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to call sinners to repentance so they could be saved. I came I came, and I was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Jesus' focus clearly was on people when he was on this earth for three and a half years. In his intercessory prayer in John chapter 17, over 40 times he referenced His twelve disciples. He's praying for his disciples. Prior to his ascension, he gave these men what's commonly called, what we call, the Great Commission. And he charged them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth by making disciples. Jesus had a world vision. And he expected the church, the disciples he left behind, to take that vision and move it forward. 
Reach the world by multiplying disciples. That isn't a thought that just appears on some obscure page of the Bible. That thought pulsates through page after page after page of the Bible. Taking the truth of God to the world. To everybody around us. It's the same vision that we find on the heart of the Apostle Paul in this passage. As Paul penned 2 Timothy, he's really writing his last will and testament. And he says to Timothy, And the things that thou hast heard of me. Timothy, you've heard this from me. The things that you heard of me. In front of many witnesses. I want you to take that same message and commit it to faithful men. And they're going to take that and give it to others also and teach them. I don't want you to miss the word thou and the thou and the things that thou hast heard of me. Second person singular. Thou. Thou. God is about the individual. God focuses on the individual. He commissions an individual. It's important to him. He saves the individual. Now, you've memorized Romans 10 and verse 9 that says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. God is about saving the individual and he works through the individual. It's important to him. But in this passage, it says, and the things that thou hast heard of me, thou and me. Timothy and Paul, thou and me. Discipleship is a relationship. It's a relationship between two, the thou and the me. And out of that relationship, the work of God gets done. And it's every one of our responsibility, folks, to get a thou and a me to come along with us and to convey the truths of God's word to, to see them grow spiritually. It is every Christian's responsibility. Have you heard of Edward Kimball? Edward Kimball. You're going to see his picture on the screen. Edward Kimball was a man that maybe didn't have a lot of influence, but he had some influence. On April the 21st in 1855, he was a Sunday school teacher. And he went to a shoe store to visit one of his students. A guy by the name of Dwight. Dwight had dropped out of fifth grade. And now Dwight is 18 years old, working in a shoe store, and he's a rebellious teenager. And Edward Kimball went to the shoe store and gave Dwight the gospel. And Dwight listened. And when the meeting was over, Kimball left, thinking that he probably wasn't very successful. But Dwight L. Moody left the shoe store that day, a new person. Now, a lot of people have heard of Dwight L. Moody. You'll see his picture. Dwight L. Moody shook two continents for Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said of Dwight Moody, He's the only man that I know that could say the word Mesopotamia in two syllables. He so butchered the English language, but yet God used him. Is his picture here. Dwight L. Moody. Let's get the next one. <clears throat> Moody was led to Christ by Kimball. 
didn't stop there. Dwight L. Moody led J.W. Chapman to Christ after a church service in Chicago. So throw up Chapman. He led Chapman to the Lord. Chapman witnessed to Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday trusted Christ as Savior. And Billy Sunday, during his remarkable year, preached the gospel to over a hundred million people in tent revivals. Billy Sunday, he led a man to the Lord by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham became a Baptist evangelist, and he preached all through the South. And he was preaching in Charlotte, North Carolina one day, actually for 11 weeks, twice a week. And to the service came Frank and Morrow Graham. But their 15-year-old son, Billy, vowed that he would not go. And Billy's friend, Grady Wilson, invited him. And they had heard that some high school students were going to stage a demonstration in front of the platform where Ham was speaking. So, so Billy Graham, he went to the meeting just to see what the disruption was going to be. And he heard the gospel. And he came back the next night and the next night. And then he trusted Christ as Savior. And in his lifetime, he spoke to more than 215 million people face-to-face, 185 countries. He spoke to over 2 billion people through radio and TV. I have personally met a number of people that were saved through the ministry or had a family member saved through the ministry of Billy Graham. Now, we look at these, these people... Graham and Ham and Sunday and Chapman and Moody and Kimball. And, and there are things, positions that these men took that we wouldn't agree with that, with their position in some areas of Bible doctrine. But it's undeniable that God used these people in a marvelous way. And literally millions of people came to faith in Christ through their ministries. But it started with Edward Kimball, a Sunday school teacher, going in a shoe store, and he led a boy to Christ. And I wonder if he walked out and thought, well, there's probably not much going to come from that. Really? Really? What God can do? What He does with people? One person reaching one person can make a difference. And you know, it's not possible on this side of heaven to know what that influence is going to be. We won't live long enough. We won't live in enough places to know the influence of the people that, that we have influenced. What's going to happen through their lives? Jesus said that we are to teach people all things whatsoever I have commanded you. You lead somebody to Christ and you just don't leave it like that. You teach them all things whatsoever Christ hath commanded us. So whatever's in the Bible, whatever he said, what he's done, what God's word said, we take that and we teach people. And then let God use that in ways that we can't possibly know how, how big the ripples are going to be. Like throwing a rock into a lake and the ripples start going and going and going. And you don't know where it's going to end. You don't know what's going to happen. You might just lead a person to Christ that you, you think is probably just going to end there. And then that person leads somebody to Christ that does a phenomenal worldwide 
ministry. This is what happens with disciple makers. They invest in people. And they let God then take those people and do what God's going to do with them. They love people enough, disciple makers, to teach them God's word. When we started our discipleship ministry at Valley Forge Baptist Temple, it started by when I hand-selected six people to start training in discipleship. And I was stumbling along. I didn't know what I was doing. I was falling on my face and getting back up. I'm, I was just doing the best I could. But I was learning as I went. And we selected six people. One of those is a guy by the name of Greg. I want you to hear Greg's testimony. Let's play it now. I remember one of the first Timothys I had the pleasure to disciple. It was a man who, prior to salvation, would have nothing to do with our church. In fact, being that his wife was a born-again Christian and he was raised Catholic, she would take their two children to our church one Sunday and he would take them to the Catholic service the next Sunday. We would ask about visiting the home and the wife would say, Not now, not if you want me and the kids to continue coming here. But God, after much prayer from the wife and our church family, softened his heart and one Thursday night on visitation, he accepted Christ as his personal Savior. Soon thereafter, I was given the privilege and joy to disciple this new and eager-to-grow Christian. As usual, I learned and in many ways grew as much as he did, it seemed. We would meet mostly over lunch, and he would always come well-prepared with testimony and questions about what he was learning through the discipleship and his devotions. His desire to grow in the practical, helpful discipleship materials was such a thrill and an encouragement for me. Although we completed the formal discipleship program a long time ago, I still have the pleasure to see and hear how God is working in his and his family's lives. I remember one Monday night he called and asked about a particular verse that he couldn't find the reference for. He wanted to witness to an inquisitive co-worker. We found the verse, and the next day he witnessed to his co-worker, and that co-worker and soon thereafter his wife accepted Christ as personal Savior. They started to attend our church and went through the discipleship program and became very involved. They later were transferred with work to another state. They first found a good church to attend, and then they found a place to live. And they have become very involved, and he now serves as a deacon with that church. My Timothy became even more excited and involved, and today he teaches our evangelism class and disciples with many, while his wife now serves on our church academy staff. That's not the rest of the story. That was uh, Brother Greg Joyner. He became one of our pastors and served as a pastor for 15 plus years at Valley Forge Baptist. He's telling about discipling a new Christian named John. And John, he led a co-worker to Christ named Mike. And Mike and his wife, Jenny, they, they got saved and they were discipled and they grew spiritually. And then a job transfer took Mike and Jenny to another state. But they kept serving Christ. He became a deacon at the church that he went to. They had a daughter named Kaylee. Kaylee grew up and went to Bible college. And she met Justin. And Justin and Kaylee are now missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And our church supports them. That's not the end of the story. Because they're still living. What's going to happen? What's God going to do with them? I don't know. But here... This guy disciples this guy and leads this guy that disciples this guy. And it just 
keeps going. And now you've got missionaries on the field that is a result of some discipleship that took place years ago. We started with six people, and we trained the six. And then I went to the church auditorium. And we were looking for more people to train in discipleship. So I went to the church auditorium on a Sunday night and I'm, I'm before service started, and I'm kind of looking around. Oh, I'm going to ask them. I'm going to ask them. I'm going to ask. So I kind of um, targeted certain people. I was going to ask if they would be willing to become a discipler and disciple new Christians. And I would go to those people, and I would explain to them what I was, what I was doing. And I said, would you be willing to be trained as a discipler to disciple others? Folks, over and over again, here's what I got. I cannot do that. I do not know enough. I could never do that. Now, I never said it to them, but I'm thinking, you don't know enough. You've been sitting in church for three decades. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You've been under preaching and under preaching. You don't know enough. That's what I'm thinking. But I'm smiling, saying, you probably know a lot more than you think you know. And some of those people finally uh, accepted the challenge. They were willing to give it a try. And so they came to the class, and we were teaching discipleship, and then they were given a Timothy, a new convert, and they started to disciple. And then some of those people came back to me, the discipler, and they said, you wouldn't believe it. My Timothy doesn't know anything in the Bible. Well, sure, they just got saved. They didn't know anything. And I'll tell you what happened, folks. The older Christians realized they knew a whole lot more than they thought they knew. And they started, some of those people, most likely for the first time in their life, started, started substantively investing themselves in a new Christian. And I'll tell you, the older Christian got excited, and the new Christian benefited from the older Christian's maturity and knowledge. And it was, really was a win-win situation in this. Everybody was profited by this. Disciple-makers. Like Edward Kimball. They're just usually unknown people. They're unknown people to the masses. But they are known to God. And that's what's important. They're like the Bible character Ebedmelech, the Ethiopian. Now, you all know about Ebedmelech, the Ethiopian, right? Probably not. Because his name's only mentioned one time, I believe. Ebedmelech, the Ethiopian. Unknown, probably unimportant. Oh, wait a minute. He's the guy that went to King Zedekiah and said, Jeremiah is going to die in the prison, in the, in the cistern, where he's sunk in the... He's going to die there if we don't pull him out and save him. And Zedekiah, the king, gave him permission. And so... Ebedmelech, the Ethiopian, goes to get some men and they draw Jeremiah out of the pit and saves his life. And because of that Ethiopian man, we have the book of Jeremiah in our Bible. If Jeremiah died, we wouldn't have had the book of Jeremiah. One guy, unbeknown even to people that read the Bible, because it's so easy just to pass over his name. He's so insignificant, but he was known to God. And he was used by God for something that has blessed all of us. 
I played an MP3 file yesterday of Ann Eifert, one of our ladies, an, an experience of her discipling. Ann grew up in inner city Baltimore in a row home. Her, uh, her dad and mom had separated. The dad was a drunk and the mom is working, trying to take care of Ann and Ann's brother and sister. And Ann, Ann was a latchkey kid. Remember that phrase? A latchkey kid? Kids that come home and have to let themselves in the house because they're coming home to an empty house. Mom's not there. Dad's not there. They're both at work or one or the other. Or they only have one parent and that parent's away at work. So they have to let themselves in and fend for themselves. Anne's memory of growing up was coming home and letting herself in the house and eating a bag of Dorito chips alone in her bedroom for dinner. That's her memory. My dinner was in my bedroom eating a bag of Dorito chips day after day. Somebody of no importance, somebody of no consequence, and then somebody down the road at a Baptist church comes down and invites her to church, and she goes, starts going to church, and she gets saved. And she keeps going to church, and she goes off to Bible college, and she meets a young man in Bible college, and they eventually marry, and they eventually enter the ministry. And Anne is the wife of one of our pastors, a godly woman that invests her life in other people because somebody invested their life in her. That's discipleship investment. Now, in your notes, I want you to fill this in. Discipleship is mandated. Discipleship is mandated. It's not an option. It's a directive. Jesus commanded us to make disciples of every nation. He tells us to teach them to observe all things that he has commanded us. He said in the scripture says in Second Timothy that the things that we have heard were to commit to faithful men who shall teach others also. In Romans, the scripture says we're to admonish one another. In Hebrews, we're told we're to exhort one another. And Hebrews also gives this warning that God... God warns us that those who ought to be teachers, they ought to be teachers based on the amount of time they've been saved and the instruction they've been under and what they've, they ought to be teachers, but they're not. They need to submit themselves to the same basic instruction again. And they're charged with being dull of hearing and unskillful in the word. Now, that was, that's a rebuke. That's a rebuke to all of us. We don't want to be dull of hearing. We don't want to be unskillful in the Word. And, and folks, if you've been saved any length of time, you don't really know how much you know in the Bible until you start talking with somebody that knows nothing about the Bible. I can remember telling a fairly new convert about handing out Bible tracts. And she, and I'm telling her, Here, here's how you hand out a Bible tract. And she read What's a track? She didn't even know what that was. Well, why would she know? They have to be trained. All of us have to be trained. You have probably sensed some responsibility to invest yourself in others. Discipleship is a ministry that can help you do that. It's practical. It's practical. 
It helps people in their daily life. When you give them Bible truth, it really makes a big difference in people's life. You, when you invest your time and your energies into another, then that is going to pay dividends. And this is exactly what discipleship is about. I'm going to give you a definition here. It's fundamentally a relationship. It took me a while before I understood that. Discipleship is fundamentally a relationship. Now, I see it in the Bible. As I read through the Bible, I see it over and over again. But until I, until I learned it, I didn't really see it in the Scripture. But it really is a relationship. And it's out of the relationship you teach certain Bible truths. I remember years ago when we still were in the stumbling stages trying to get going, I asked one of our godly men if he would disciple somebody. And I said, well, how would I do that? He said, well, I've got this book to use. And, uh, and he said, well, let me see the book and I'll let you know. And when he said that, let me see the book and I'll let you know. Then the thought hit me. He thinks discipleship is covering material. He thinks that's what discipleship is. Covering material. That's why he said, let me see the book and then I'll let you know. Discipleship is not covering material. It's not covering lessons. Discipleship is relationship. You teach out of the relationship. Now, here's a definition for you. Discipleship is investing. That's your blank. It's investing your life in a relationship with another for the purpose of reproducing a spiritually mature follower of Jesus Christ. There's three thoughts there. Investment, relationship, and reproduction. And that's what sums up discipleship. You can reproduce what you are, but you can't reproduce more than you are. So wherever you're at in your spiritual life, folks, you can take a new convert and bring them up to your level. You can train and teach them what you've learned and, and bring them up to where they know what you know. But you can't disciple them beyond where you're at. Because you don't know that yet. You, you have to keep growing too. There's accountability built into this. You are accountable to your Timothys, what we call them. Paul had his Timothy, so we use that term. You are a, you're accountable to your Timothy. You're accountable to God. But you, you've got to stay a step ahead. You, you've got to be accountable to them. Now, all of you that are parents, do you parent this way? Do you tell your children, do not do as I do, do as I say? Does that work? Don't do what I do. Do what I say. Your kids aren't dumb. You, you, you have to live what you say. Do what I do and do what I say. If you're living it, then you have a chance of influencing your kids through your instruction. But if you're not living it, you know, some father sitting there puffing on a cigarette. Don't, don't smoke, son. They're not going to listen to that, Dad, unless they are repulsed by the habit. Discipleship is this way. We have to be living what we're trying to instruct our Timothys to do. And that, that builds accountability. And that's important. Folks, your community needs Christians. And your community needs Christians that will take the Bible and help young Christians grow in their faith. 
South Riding needs that. The areas around South Riding need Christians that are growing and that will take the Scripture and train newer Christians to grow in their faith. It's not primarily academic. Discipleship is primarily relational. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. And he, meaning Jesus, goeth, goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came to him. And here's what Jesus did. He ordained 12 that they should be with him. Is the words with him underlined in your notes? Those are key. He ordained 12 that they should be with him. And they were with him first. Then later he sent them forth to preach. But they spent time with him. Was Jesus effective in training his disciples? He spent time with them. Where Jesus went, they went. When Jesus spoke, they listened. When Jesus did miracles, they watched. They spent time with Jesus in all of these experiences that Jesus Christ had. So when Jesus Christ got in a boat and he went across the Sea of Galilee to the east side of the, of the sea, and he's going there for some rest and relaxation, and he gets off the boat, and there's 5,000 men plus women and children, people that have run around the north shore of the Sea of Galilee because they're watching the boat that Jesus is on, and they're running to Jesus. They want to go where Jesus is going. And when Jesus gets to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's getting off the boat, there's a multitude of people there. And, and the Bible says that when he saw them, Jesus' heart was moved with compassion. And he stopped, and he taught them, and they were hungry, and he gave them something to eat, and he used the disciples to dispense the bread and to collect the baskets filled with bread, the 12 baskets afterwards. The disciples were there watching Jesus do this. They were part of it. When Jesus was back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and a guy by the name of Jairus comes to him and says, my, my daughter is sick nigh unto death. Will you come? And Jesus is going to come. And he's moving through the crowds on his way to Jairus' house. And as he's moving through the crowds, somebody reaches out and touches the hem of his garment and Jesus stops and he turns around. Who touched me? Now, I don't know what the disciples were thinking, but they're probably thinking, who touched you? The crowd is here. What do you mean, who touched? There was somebody reached out and touched him. And she came forward and she fell before him and she gave her story. She'd been to doctors after doctors, spent all of her living. She still was, was ill with this issue of blood. And as, when she reached out and touched Christ, she was healed. And Jesus dealt with this dear lady. And as he was dealing with this individual in the crowd, the disciples are standing there and they're watching Jesus interact with the individual. And then Jairus' servants come and they say to him, Jairus, she's dead. Don't, don't trouble the master. She's dead. And Jesus looks and tells him, have faith. Believe. And Jairus takes, and Jesus takes Jairus, follows Jairus, and takes some disciples, not all twelve, and they go to the house. And in the house are these professional mourners that are hired to mourn for the dead. That's what the culture 
demanded. You wanted people mourning the death of a family member, so you hired people to come in and mourn. Now, others just came because they knew the, the person, the family, but people are mourning this girl and that died, and Jesus said, she's not dead, she sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. They're laughing because they, they know, she said, it's not funny, but they're, they're not emotionally attached. So they can laugh in the midst of all this pain. Jesus takes the disciples and goes, and parents, they go in, and there she's laying on the bed, and he raises her up, gives her life back. And there's disciples standing there watching that happen. What Jesus did, they saw. What Jesus said, they heard. They watched him get mad at the scribes and the Pharisees, and they listened to him. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! That's Jesus. Hypocrites! And the disciples are standing there listening. They get the idea. He's making people mad. Christ rebuked the religious hypocrites, and the disciples heard that. Oh, here's another one. And John chapter 2 tells us this. Jesus goes into the temple, and there's buying and selling, and it's big business. Ooh, he is upset. Jesus is upset. And he leaves, and he sits down, and he takes a little piece of wood, and he takes some leather, and he cuts the leather into some strips, and he attaches it to the piece of wood. And John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Jesus made a scourge. He made a whip. And as he's making it, and the disciples are with him, I wonder if any one of the disciples asked him, what, what are you doing, Jesus? I am making a whip. A whip? We don't have any animals. I'm not going to use it on an animal. I'm going to use this on people. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he takes that whip and he goes into the temple and in a rage, he kicks over the money changers' tables. He takes the whip and he chases people and animals out of the temple and he says, my house is a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. And they fled before him. And the disciples watched it, the Scripture says. And when they watched it, they thought, the, the verse in the, in the Psalms comes to their mind. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. They remembered the Scripture when they saw Jesus acting like he yeah. The disciples spent time with Jesus. Now, was Jesus effective in in teaching and training his disciples? Go with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts 3. Look in verse 1. Now, Jesus is gone. He's been crucified, resurrected, ascended. He's in heaven. And the disciples are carrying on his ministry. Chapter 3, verse 1. Acts. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried and whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered the temple. So that's what this beggar is doing, asking alms. Peter and John come by, and, and they look at this guy, and they say to him, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. 
in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And this guy gets up and he goes into the temple with them, leaping and praising God. Now, that's chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 1. And as they spake unto the people and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they laid hands on them. And they put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. So here they're in the temple, and they've been teaching, and the authorities, they don't like what they're hearing. So they get Peter and John and lay hands on them and throw them in jail temporarily, and they're going to stand before the council, which they do. Verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, in the midst of this council of men, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers, that's who he's speaking to, the rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, the guy that was at the beautiful gate of the temple, by what means he's made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, that this man stand before you whole. And this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. That's what they answered. Verse 13, Now when they, meaning the elders and the rulers, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, and that means they didn't have any of the rabbinical schooling of the day. They hadn't been to the institutions of higher learning. They were unlearned and ignorant men. But when they saw them and marveled, they saw the boldness and they marveled and they took knowledge of them. What did they take knowledge of? That they had been with Jesus. You got it? They saw the boldness. They saw how they acted. They listened to what they said. And they said, uh, you guys have been hanging around that Jesus guy that we crucified. Right? Was Jesus effective in his discipleship training? Absolutely. They went out and they lived the Christian life just the way Jesus taught them. They took knowledge of them, that they'd been with Jesus. And that's the blanks in your notes. They'd been with Jesus. It's relational. The goal of discipleship is change. We all need to change, every one of us. And as we work with a new convert, they need to change. Here's some passages that tell us about the change that has to take place. Ephesians 4. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what we're to change and measure up to. Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're to have the mind of Christ. We've got to change to be that way. Romans 8. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. 2 Corinthians 3. But we all, with open face, beholding as 
in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Ephesians 4, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. 1 John 3, beloved, now we are the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. That's what God is trying to do in us. He's trying to make us just like Jesus. He wants us in the image of his son. And we're in the process of being changed. As 2 Corinthians says, from glory to glory to glory. Step by step, we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And when we work with a new convert, we're trying to help them change to be like Christ as we try to change to be like Christ as we grow in our spiritual life. Now, the process. I'm going to give you some terms. Regeneration, justification, adoption, reconciliation, and sanctification. Those are big Bible words, and they all have rich meanings. And they deal with the change that takes place in a believer. Regeneration has to do with our nature. Our nature. The sinner stands before God as a child of disobedience, but is changed to walk as a child of the light. We get a new nature at salvation. Justification. It has to do with our standing before God. The sinner stands guilty and condemned before God, but is declared righteous, justified. The guy that has run our bookstore at our church for years, for decades, John Jeffries, born and raised in, in South Philly. He's a Philly guy, He's, and he grew up rough on the streets. And John and his buddies growing up, would go down to the, to the SEPTA yard. SEPTA is the bus system. They would climb over the chain link fence. And back then, several decades ago, SEPTA would leave the keys in the bus. But they had it inside a, a chain link fence yard. And the boys would climb over the chain link fence. And they would get in the buses and play in the buses. They'd back it up and pull it forward and back it up and pull it forward. And they got to where they knew how to run a bus. But then they would scamper over the chain link fence before uh, sunlight. And... But one day, John got the idea, I've been on this bus route a lot. I think I can run this bus route. So one night, he climbs that fence, and he gets in the bus. He starts it. He goes to the front gate, gets out. He opens the gate. He drives the septa bus out, and he waits to the right time, and he starts running the bus route. He goes to the first stop, opens the door, the adults are looking up there and a 15-year-old boy sitting in the seat of the SEPTA bus. A lot of them wouldn't get on the bus. He goes on to the next stop and opens the door, picks up one who goes to the next stop. He, he is running the bus route. And while that is happening, SEPTA is looking for their bus. They've discovered one of our buses is missing. The driver shows up to run his bus. He can't find his bus. So now the police are out. They're looking for the bus. And somebody calls the police station. There's a 15-year-old boy running the SEPTA route. And John comes up over the hill there in, in Philadelphia. And when he crests the hill and he looks down, there's a line of police cars, lights flashing, barricades. The police are out there with rifles, bullhorn. Stop the bus. Get out of the bus. They don't know who's really riding that bus. They don't know if there's hostages in that bus. But, but John now is scared to death. 
He stops the bus and turns it off. He gets out on the ground, lays on his face. This is John. This is the way John was raised. But 15 becomes 16, 17, 18, and the crimes get worse and get worse. And John had a rough life. And, I mean, he stood before judge and judge and judge. And he finally stood before this judge at the end. And this judge he's standing before was renowned for putting people away. A no-nonsense judge. You're going to prison. And John is standing before him. He knows it's the end of the rope for him. And the judge, here's the evidence. Here's what John did. John was guilty. And the judge, instead of giving him the sentence and putting him in prison, he asked him, why should I give you another chance? John burst into tears. And the judge did something very uncharacteristic. He let John go one more time. He wasn't accustomed to doing that. And John walked out knowing, I just missed prison. Could have been in prison. John had a buddy that had come to faith in Christ. And John hadn't seen the buddy since the guy had come to faith in Christ. But he heard about it. So-and-so got religion. And his life has changed. And John didn't know how to get a hold of him. But John's in his apartment this day. Somebody knocks on the door. John opens the door. And there's the guy that got saved. And John reaches out and grabs him and pulls him in the apartment. And he wants to know everything that happened in this guy's life. And the guy gave him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John got saved. And he's a different person. Because somebody cared enough to come by and to help him. We're no longer guilty. We're declared righteous. Just like John was given, we've been given a new lease on life. Adoption has to do with our relationship. The sinner stands before God as a, sinner, as a stranger, but he has made a son or a daughter of God. We've become a child of God, a part of the family. Reconciliation. Reconciliation has to, also has to do with relationship. The sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes his friend. Now, I need two teenagers up here. It's going to help me with a, an illustration. In reconciliation, we stand before God as an enemy, and he's going to make us a friend. And which is the taller? Oh, man, you're both the same. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You're taller. All right, this is God. <laughs> And this is Adam. <laughs> All right. Face each other. The Garden of Eden. God made Adam and Eve. They fellowship with God. There's this wonderful relationship of God with His creation in the Garden of Eden. But then you get to chapter 3. In chapter 3, mankind turns its back on God. So turn around. Now, this is, this is what happens in the Garden of Eden. And man is now estranged from God. And God turns around. He doesn't look on sin. This, this is severed. This is broken. And God makes a way to restore this. So God sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And He pays for the sins of mankind. And folks, this right now is the way the world is living. This is the world. 
God is facing. He's sent His Son. The Son has died. The sins have been paid for. It has to be applied to our account. God wants people saved, but they've got their back to God. And if we turn around and trust Christ as Savior, we are reconciled. That relationship is restored. And this is what God wants. Thank God. This is what God wants. Reconciliation. Sanctification has to do with our character and conduct. The sinner stands before God unholy and unclean and is made spotless. Salvation changes everything. And then growth can start happening. Sanctification is a word that is used different ways in the Scripture. One, it's the turning and the restoring of the relationship separate from sin unto God. It's also a process as we grow in sanctification and become more like Christ. The change takes place. And the change is this. We, we become separate from evil. That's your fill-in. We become we leave sin behind. Now, we're, we're always going to be sinners, but we, we sin less and less and less. We should. We should grow and sin less and become dedicated to God. Fully hearted, given over to God. This basically happens by saying no to the sins of the flesh, by learning God's Word, meditating on it, and then doing it. And I gave you a chart. I'm not going to look at the chart for time's sake. But that chronicles the change that takes place in us. Basically, three steps. No to the flesh. Our minds are renewed by the, by the Word of God. And we live a different way. And we sing about that. The things, I used to, the things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The things I used to say, I don't say them anymore. It's a great day since I've been born again. You know the little, the little course? Change takes place in us. It's sanctification. God is working His will in us and making us a new creature. We unsaved people, as we all were one time in our life, we view ourselves exactly opposite from the way God views us. I'll tell you how we viewed ourselves, and the way lost people view themselves today. And they may not articulate it, but their basic understanding is this. We're basically good people. We, we mess up from time to time. It might be attributed to low self-esteem. It might be hormones. It might be peer pressure. It might be social disadvantage. It might be a disorder that we were unfortunate to be born with, or a combination of the above. That's the way we viewed ourselves before we were saved. God doesn't view us that way. God's view is this. People are basically evil. Their goodness was destroyed in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And they only do right by the grace of God. God looks at His creation entirely different. By the way, God's view is right. God's view is right. That's why the Scripture says... The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Given the chance to do wrong, we'll do wrong. Particularly if we think we can get away with it, we'll do wrong. That's just... But we have to be changed from the inside out. 
We want to do things our way. Judges 17, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Psalm 81, I gave them up to their own heart's lust to walk after their own counsels. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to thine own understanding. Proverbs 28, he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Isaiah 5, woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Romans 12, be not wise in your own conceits. 2 Timothy 3, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's the way God knows that we really are. Living contrary to Him. That, that de- we defy God and we defile ourselves. But then God saves us. Christ saves us. And now we're on a process of growing spiritually. The principle of sin has darkened our understanding before salvation, but then the light of salvation comes to us. And the Holy Spirit illuminates our understanding and we grow spiritually. Now, what about you, folks? What about you? When you work with a Timothy, you're helping them in this process of growing in the Lord. As we're growing in the Lord, we're helping them grow in the Lord. It's every one of our responsibility. Prior to his ascension, Jesus commissioned his church to make disciples all over the world. It's not a suggestion. It's a mandate. It's not the whole of the Christian life. But discipleship is very much a part, a critical part of the Christian life. Will you invest your life in others to see them change? Will you be a link in a chain that helps another come closer to God? Will you be a link in a chain to help somebody? Somebody helped us. Let's be a link in a chain.